Stay hungry, stay foolish. In business, government, and every aspect of contemporary life, business leaders are struggling to find workable solutions to today's biggest complex challenges. As a former Pentagon official and CEO of a billion-dollar organization, our guest has seen firsthand that the current models for solving diverse problem sets no longer works. Organizations and individuals need to adopt an entirely different approach to the biggest challenges they face and embrace a new model to ensure they emerge triumphant. That model is called a Renaissance campaign. We welcome author of the Renaissance campaign, a problem solving formula for your biggest challenges. John Rogers, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thank you so much. It's fantastic to have you on the show, John. I, I really enjoyed the book. It's so full of practical knowledge of how to drive change. And we'll get into what the Renaissance element is, what the campaign element is, because you divulge all that as the book goes on. But I wanted to start by citing the amount of disruption and change we're experiencing. And that no matter how big or small our challenges, there are always ways to manage the disruptions of our world, but we need new tools to do so. And these are tools you have discovered through failure, through success, and of all places in 15th century Italy. So uh, when the Renaissance came about, it was the uh, on the tail end of the plague, and the plague had decimated Europe, and decimated uh, Florence, and um, and as part of that, the Medici family, which was a banking family in Florence, uh, uh, committed to rebuild and had a vision to rebuild Florence. Uh, and they they realized that a lot of the people, a lot of the craftsmen uh, who they would initially call upon were deceased uh, because of the plague. And so they had to figure out do how to do this a different way. So they started to bring together uh, uh, you, you, the creatives, uh, uh, Michelangelo and, and Da Vinci and, and others to help them visualize and think, what Florence could look like. Uh, and through that, that confluence, through that mixed table uh, of bringing different people to bear on uh, this problem, they created a, a city that is arguably one of the most beautiful cities uh, in the world, one of the most progressive cities in the world in terms of its design and its architecture, and, and one of the most enduring cities in the world, uh, Florence. And John, one of the things you mentioned here was, okay, we're in the backdrop of this plague. I, I thought how how serendipitous of this book, because it talks about this moment of dramatic change in the backdrop of a crisis of sorts. And, you know, when you look back, if you were to zoom out from the history of, of mankind, humankind on this planet, we've had crisis after crisis, and we keep bouncing back, and we keep coming back stronger and stronger. But one thing has changed dramatically, and that is the onset of this digital world. And you liken it to the introduction of the printing press 
into the world that all of a sudden we were able to educate ourselves more. And because we were able to educate ourselves more, opinions became more and more diverse. Yeah, it changed everything. Uh, and it it took, you know, the, the back with the Gutenberg press, you know, we we had to rely on the, uh, before the Gutenberg press, we relied on the church. Uh, humanity relied on the church for its information, its knowledge. And then the uh, Gutenberg press was a great equalizer. Uh, people actually could start to learn for themselves. They did, they read, they understood, uh, and it changed the world. It created as part of the Renaissance, right? Fast forward uh, to the digital age, you know, at the beginning of the digital age, our sources for information, in the way uh, I describe it, were vertical in nature. They were funneled in nature. Uh, you know, the funnel was like this, and and it was you know, the, the networks and the, uh, the, uh, uh, there was a series of agreed upon uh, uh, sources, uh, the, you know, by which people got their news, their information. The, the uh, internet has changed that. The digital era has changed all that. So now it's, of course, like that. Uh, it's completely uh, opened up. And, and there's both blessing and curse in those words. Uh, and we've, uh, uh, but it, but one thing, uh, regardless of good or bad, we know that that disruption is here and it's here to stay. And one of the things you talk about, which is a huge issue, and we, something we've brought up on the show before, John, is that we're encouraged to study so narrowly and seek expertise in a field and climb to the top of a ladder and not jump to another ladder. And this is a huge challenge in today's society where we become, even though the internet's there and knowledge can be shared widely, we actually got to go through a filter bubble, an echo chamber and discover a piece of knowledge and keep going down that rabbit hole at the expense of a bigger picture. Yeah, it's a problem for us. I mean, you know, we've got great specialists and we need the specialists. It is not to say we don't need specialists, but we also need generalists. And we need to understand. Uh, we need to understand different perspectives. You know, I I um, I talk frequently about how we all suffer from rigidity of thought, and that, uh, and we all suffer from rigidity of thought. And it's a it, it's not only our education, it's our social upbringing, it's it, it's you know our demo, you know where demographically where we fit, geographically where we are, it's all of these different things socially that make up our own set of rigidities of thought. And and one of the things that a, a leader must do is make sure that they're constantly listening and working hard to break through that rigidity of thought. I call it. Uh, I refer to it as being a prisoner of or prisoner of our own perspectives. And so how do you break out of prison? Well, what they did back in the Renaissance, what the Medici family did, and indeed what we do with the mixed tables that we pull together, is they very intentionally bring together those who they otherwise wouldn't talk to, uh, to help them address and solve those problems so that they're getting different perspectives doesn't mean that they don't have the uh, subject matter experts at hand. They do and they should. Uh, but it means that it's not just limited to those. Yeah, and we'll talk deeply about mixed tables because it's a core 
lesson from this book it's one of the things you really want to impart from the book and something you 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 describe so deeply that you leave us with no choice but to adopt this brilliant mindset but to bring it to life a little bit you share a story of a friend of yours from darpa and this is where the mixed table brought to life the connection between social networks and cancer yeah, so uh, as as you know, uh, being as esteemed and uh, and, and uh, involved as you are in the digital uh, world, social networks, social movements have been a, a subject of, of of great study and interest. Um, and this was after the Arab Spring, and one of the things that uh, some of the folks that I was talking with and working with at the Department of Defense were, uh, were looking at was how information flows in, um, in social networks. Um, and a, a really brilliant researcher had an idea that, well, perhaps uh, that flow of information and how those digits move um, operate similarly to how cancers move and how uh, research moves uh, with regards to with regards to cancer. And so he took on a study uh, that that looked at different pockets of research and if he could connect all of them, what would he learn that hadn't been learned before? And of course, the advent of really strong supercomputing allowed him and others to do these kinds of analysis that you know heretofore were not a, you one couldn't do uh, and so he he looked at he looked at that model um, so that he could on the one hand work to solve and help address cancer uh, and and on the other hand, really take a look at this thorny, knotty um, uh, national security issue uh, uh, from a different perspective. So I just thought it was a really interesting way he went about it, and I wanted to include it in the book. Yeah, and to give a nod to somebody else who also adopted this holistic thinking, where you got it from, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, is to honor you as well, your parents, because you'd mentioned your mother and how she used holistic thinking to crack the Joycean code. Well, you know, being in Dublin, <laughs> uh, you probably know a thing or two about Joyce. Uh, and you probably know a thing or two more about Joyce than I did. But my mother, and I, I must admit, and I, I, I deeply apologize if I'm offending you or Aiden or uh, any of your listeners, but Joyce was always really hard for me to read. But my mother loved reading Joyce. And uh, there was a, a mystery in, um, in Ulysses um, that, that for years hadn't been solved. And uh, something, there was a riddle that was hidden in it. Uh, and, um, and my mother, by the way, also happened to be a singer. And she was the longest serving singer at the Chicago Symphony Chorus. She sang under Margaret Hillis and, and George Schulte, and she was 
she was, uh, you know, a trained musician in that she went to school, Roosevelt University, for music theory and really understood the, the theory of music. And, and what I also didn't know about James Joyce is that he was a musician, uh, you know, a, a really strong musician. And had he not proven to be a brilliant author, uh, his biographers would have said that he would have, he would have, that's where he would have tried to earn his living. Well, the, my mom read Ulysses and heard about the riddle and all this. And she just looked up and said, well, it's a fugue. Uh, and, and the academics, you know, were not musically trained. Well, what are you talking about? No, it's a fugue. Here's the structure right here. And she breaks it apart for them. And because Joyce was a musician and she was a musician, she was able to bring a different perspective to bear to something that other Joycean scholars who are not musically trained could never see. And so it's all about, you know, it's all about one's perspective. And you build on that then to build upon the Joycean code. You talk about how you cracked the IEDs, the detection of IEDs, and I'll let you explain what that is and how it came about. Well, um, I would say that we contributed uh, versus cracked uh, for the sake of, of, uh, of accuracy uh, from my vantage point, because a lot of people worked really hard on this problem. And IEDs are roadside bombs. Uh, and in the uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, Allied forces um, were really being harmed and hurt uh, by um, by the roadside bombs by IEDs. And the question, uh, you know, lots of questions were were framed around how to um, how to identify them. But one of the um, um, one of the things that we were asked to look for is Kenya activating the entertainment community and you know, the national security slash Hollywood network is can you identify can you identify any telltale signs? What are the TTMs, TTPs? Uh, and uh, one of the signs that you know the the adversaries would leave out there. Well it was a filmmaker who, who we were working with at the time identified it and said Listen, it's it's the shot. If you look at what they're doing, they're recording all of these, and they're recording all these these attacks for propaganda purposes. So so they have to get the camera shot as to where they're going to place that bomb, and 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 thus, if you look at it from where they're going to shoot it from then you can detect more easily where the bomb is going to reside, where they're going to lay the bomb. And so it turned out that there was real merit to, to that hypothesis. Uh, and not only was that able to be incorporated into, uh, into training of, of uh, U.S. and allied forces, but it was also incorporated into uh, simulation systems so that we could help those soldiers identify when they saw something in advance that there was a, a you know, when they saw a topography, that there was a, a, a chance that, you know, they, there may be a roadside bomb there. So it all was intended to help save lives. So speaking of great stories, John, you share a great story of your meeting with Les Aspen, and this was one that changed the course of your life. Les was, um, Les ultimately became one of my mentors. Uh, and he was, um, 
my one of my first interactions with Les, I had just been hired as his district director. He was a congressman from southeast Wisconsin. He was the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee. And I went into a staff meeting with him, which is the one I think you're referring to here, Aiden. Uh, and we had um, uh, we had just passed, and I was responsible for this, the National Clean Lakes Program. And the reason we had uh, restored and passed a law for the National Clean Lakes Program was to restore this little lake in southeastern Wisconsin called Delavan Lake. And and uh, and I was, you know, I was. Full of, you know, full of, uh, uh, full of myself at that time. I just thought, boy, you know, I am, this is really cool. We have changed the course of, you know, U.S. law and that we're gonna, we're gonna clean up the environment. We've, you know, we've passed this big bill and, and he starts grilling me <laughs> and uh, on how we're, how this one little lake, uh, is going to be cleaned up. And, and he went on and on and he wanted to know how they were going to drain it and how the, you know, they were going to kill the fish and how they were going to rebuild it and how they were going to put in the, the water and how, how many wells would be impacted and question after question. And I've, you know, again, I've had this, you know, I'm 20 something years old. I've had this huge victory and I, I'm thinking to myself, what are you doing? I'm getting more and more agitated as he's grilling, drilling harder and harder. And I'm, and I'm thinking to myself, man, this is just ridiculous. And my face is getting red. And, <laughs> and at the end of it, he says, John, don't get mad. I was just curious. I was just curious. And that, that mindset, the mindset of curiosity the mindset of really understanding and taking the time to be curious about the questions that you are grappling with and the issues that you have has stuck with me forever, forever. It has stuck with me forever because you, you have to be curious. You have to listen. You have to ask good questions. You have to be present and you have to be mindful. And, and Aspen instilled that in me in a way that, that changed my life. And I've tried to carry that forward every day ever since. By the way, I absolutely got that from the book, John, and it's one of the reasons I wanted to share it with our audience here on the Innovation Show. I want to share that mindset. It's so valuable. It's so valuable in any what you call campaign change, transformation, personal change your habits, whatever it may be, campaigns are done this way, and you're highly experienced in it. And you mentioned something else to do with Les, which was later on in the in the 80s, Les was the chairman of the House of Armed Services Committee, at a time when Democrats were perceived as soft on defense. And you used the technique of what you mentioned earlier on mixed tables to change all that. And I was a pup of a staffer. Uh, but it, uh, again, it was, uh, something that, uh, that also changed my life. Uh, and so here we are, we're at the end of the cold war, uh, and we are, um, there's profound changes. Um, and, and Aspen was really trying hard to work through the issues of what 
U.S. foreign policy and uh, NATO's policies were going to be post-Cold War. Um, and he he embarked on a series of, of meetings around the country where he would bring together people who would not talk to each other, but for Aspen convening. So he'd put a retired army, you know, or an air force or you know, a general flag officer uh, together with uh, an industry executive from defense. And those two would normally talk to each other next to uh, a brilliant uh, uh, sociology or political science professor from a university who wouldn't talk with them uh, next to a campaign operative who would never talk to them next to a, uh, you know, a local political leader who barely knew any of these guys. <laughs> so, so that he could start to um, assemble uh, different perspectives around really complex problems. Now, part of that was, you know, as any leader does, he certainly had his um, thoughts going into those meetings as to what different possibilities uh, were, uh, you know, and what the more likely scenarios were uh, for the future of, uh, uh, you know, for what foreign policy was going to look like. That said, he didn't have it all. And he recognized that he didn't have it all. And so he wanted to get those different perspectives. And, and through that process, it became a, a really refined um, um, set of, of, you know, um, a set of policies and analysis around those policies that to this day, um, uh, you know, serve in many respects as the underpinnings of post-Cold War U.S. foreign policy and domestic policy. I remember at the time he said that, you know, one of the, the challenges that we're going to have in the U.S. Um, is that the Cold War was a great unifier. Didn't matter if you're a Republican or a Democrat, you had a, a common enemy. And he posed the question, you know, without that common enemy, and Lord knows no one wants enemies, no one wants war, no one wants those things, but he posed the academic, intellectually a valid question. Without those, without that, uh, that enemy, what will, uh, what will society look like? And will it remain cohesive or will it start to, uh, uh, will start to, sh you know, shred apart as a result? And, and clearly, uh, he was on to something there, because we do not have that, those that set of united principles that we did 50 years ago or 40 years ago in this country. Absolutely. And hopefully, we've seen parts of that unification, thanks to the common enemy of this pandemic that we're all fighting against. But uh, we're still not there yet, as you say, John, we, we still have, um, I mean, part of the problem with the digital era, and the news cycle that we were talking about, the informational sources we were talking about before, is that people believe whatever they want to believe anymore so that it's things that are emotionally convenient for them. That's what they believe versus what the facts tell them. As we mentioned, the filter bubbles keep them there as well. So it doesn't get them into the mixed table mindset. It's a big, hard problem, Aiden. It is, man, isn't it? Yeah, it's... it's uh... It's one we're gonna we're gonna have to find a solution to some way if we're gonna reunite. Absolutely, totally agree.
Yeah, Love to work with you on that solution. It's one of the things that drives me, John, with this information that we share on the show. You know, behind me is all these brilliant authors like yourself every week share that knowledge that just I don't feel is out there enough. And uh, if we can contribute towards that in some little way, that's the goal of this. So um, moving on, I, I, I'd love to come back. To, you mentioned some stuff there. For example, the the psychological war, warfare that happens at mixed tables, particularly at the start before a purpose is set, etc. And we'll go through the six steps of setting up a table and a successful campaign. But I wanted to mention really to give credit to you and to the work that you and Michael J. Fox have done for the Parkinson's Action Network as well. So you've used mixed tables here to great effect as well. So maybe we'll say a word on that just to also acknowledge that work that you're doing on behalf of humanity. And indeed, so is Michael J. Fox. The work with Michael was some of the most rewarding work of my entire career. And it really, um, uh, it, it was asking the questions the question uh, related to the stem cells, uh, quote unquote, wars campaigns back in the early 2000s, mid 2000s, what aren't we doing uh, from a public policy perspective? What were what were we missing? There was great advocacy effort and great success with that uh, advocacy up on Capitol Hill and in the legislature, but it was only it could only go so far. So um, Michael called me up one day and said, I want to do something about this. And, and I said, Michael, you don't, you don't need a guy like me. You need a, you need a kid. Uh, and he said, no, no, I really want to do something about this. And, and, um, and I said, I'd be happy to help. I flew to New York and, and we, we met and we realized that um, if he played offense, most entertainment what most celebrities play what I refer to as defense when it comes to politics and policy. They take incoming calls from elected officials who ask them to do something versus offense. I'm going to set an agenda and go try to move something. Uh, and, and Michael uh, wanted to play offense. Uh, and as a, a rugby player, you understand, you know, an athlete, you understand that well. Um, and so we took, we put together a campaign th with the intention of flipping the U.S. Senate at a time that nobody thought it could be done. And indeed, the U.S. Senate flipped, um, uh, you know, in no small part because of Michael's work on stem cells. Uh, and you, by looking at, looking at the whole public policy perspective through the lens of, of a mixed table of what's not being done, uh, we were able to have a profound impact on that by then orchestrating a campaign uh, to flip the U.S. Senate. And we'll get into the process and the mindset and the structure and the mental frameworks of how to do that now by looking deeper at what a mixed table is. And before we do, just so you know, John, so many of our audience are CEOs, transformation workers, change makers in their organizations, entrepreneurs, startup founders, etc. So they're all leading campaigns, even those of us who are doing it for ourselves, maybe it's a new habit in 2021, whatever it may be. But I, I really found this interesting. So if you bring any diverse group of people together, like you said, 
the first thing that you can almost see the thought bubbles sticking out of their heads and they're kind of going, what am I doing here? Why is he here? Why is she there? <laughs> and all of a sudden, it's like, why are we all being brought together? And so many of us in change have done that and tried to create a mixed table. And, and I often think of it, John, like the idea of the watering hole, you know, where the the gazelle can drink freely with the lion and then afterwards it's back into the silos back into warfare when it's open season but there's a quote i wanted to share from the book and it goes as follows if we really want to advance society intelligent insightful people must be able to share their real thoughts without fear of backlash and at a mixed table done well can provide exactly that opportunity. So let's use that as a way to share the process. So it's a six step process. And maybe I'll let you take over here at where the process begins. So the six step process is on the campaign side. Um, to, and I let me say a, a couple things here. The, what I was um, trying to communicate there is that a mixed table done well uh, can become a safe space to take on really hard, wicked hard problems uh, in a way that um, kill the uh, the naysayers within an organization uh, and enable uh, organizations to um, and leaders of organizations to really address the those uh, stubborn recalcitrant issues that they've been challenged with. And the way to do that is a little formulaic from my perspective. You, you, you of course, have your, your team, your subject matter experts, then bring in thought leaders from the outside, then bring in creatives, as in, you know, people from the stage, from theater, people from Hollywood, people from um, the music industry, artists, people who are paid to create. Because what I have found is that by bringing in that, the, you know, the, the, the creatives into the discussion vastly changes what that table feels like. And so it's not just the same old people with the same old preconceived notions. You really are mixing it up. And so that was the, to me, uh, that's the kernel of, of the idea for people to change how they organize and structure their their process for mixed tables. After that, uh, after you go through the mixed table process, you work through uh, you know what the outcome uh, to the challenges that you're facing are, what the outcomes are. Then it switches into campaign mode, uh, and and I uh, one of my sayings is that life is a campaign. It's actually a series of millions of campaigns that we all run every day. We just don't call them campaigns. Uh, but they all have the same common architecture. They all have the same chassis. And, and so if you look at life being a campaign with the same chassis, um, then it just gets easier. So, uh, you know, you and I getting on this podcast together, it's a campaign. Uh, you have an objective. You you. Uh, you, 
you, you set some context around it. Uh, you know, we've, we're Zooming versus uh, FaceTiming versus, uh, you know, uh, using Microsoft. We're, so we're, we're doing that and, and you, 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 you map out the process of, of what it's going to look like. And then from mapping out the process, you, you develop a set of strategies for things you want to talk about and where you want to go. And then you, then you, you know, have some tactics, some arrows in your quiver that you're going to uh, specifically ask me about. And, and you've got those ready and, you know, you're, you know, pulling the arrows at the right time and, and pulling them in and then you execute. And that's a campaign. And we do that all of the time. Every day we do that when our spouse asked us to go to the grocery store and we got to come up with a list and we do that when we are running a sales and marketing campaign or a go-to-market campaign. And we do that when we're running a cybersecurity campaign. And we do that when we're acquiring or selling our businesses. It's the same set of fundamentals. But understanding those fundamentals and what to do with those fundamentals is where it breaks down. And so from my vantage point, my contention is that if we could put light on them and bring them to, to the top of people's minds so that they understand where they're at in the campaign, they can then be more intentional about that campaign and make it a lot easier. You mentioned the creatives there. That will intrigue people because many of these organizations actually contain those type of people they are actually working those organizations yet they'll bring in outside consultants from the big consultancy companies and overlook the very gems they have right in front of them and you shared you mentioned earlier on about the ieds and bringing in the hollywood directors but also you mentioned hollywood had a massive impact post 9 11 with the department of defense another great example yeah, I mean, so um, uh, the 9-11 Commission report um, uh, identified the lack of imagination as one of the um, one of the underpinnings that left uh, that that led to um, um, that led to 9-11. After all, who can envision you know somebody flying airplanes into buildings as a form of terrorist attack and and using you know. Our, our airline industry, the airline industry, as tools of uh, weapons of mass destruction. Well, Hollywood could. Uh, you know, all writers could. Uh, in fact, Tom Clancy, uh, in a book a few years before that, had a plane flying into the U.S. Capitol, uh, decimating the U.S. Capitol, the leadership, and, and that was the premise of the book. Uh, and so... You know, one of the things that we started to do, we had an Army Assistant Secretary come to me and, and some of my partners at the time and, and ask us to start assembling different uh, creatives to help them think through different problem sets. And at my company, Leaders, uh, you, you know, what RL does is serves as the nexus between the national security communities and uh, and the and the entertainment communities to take on these really wicked art problems. Now we've expanded that mission over time, but at, at our heart, we still are very much in the business of being at that nexus. So again, you know, bringing people together who otherwise wouldn't talk to each other to look at problem sets 
Um, but the credo is at the core of the methodology, but credos are unique. And that, um, uh, you know, what I'm thinking about with a credo, because I would, I would argue that virtually, you know, almost everybody's got some semblance of creativity in them. What I'm talking about with creatives are paid Imagineers used to working under a time budget. Paid Imagineers used to working under a time budget. These are people who are paid to imagine things for a living uh, and are used to having to produce a product in short order, which is why I love the Hollywood writers, right? Because the Hollywood writers, if they're working on a sitcom or a drama or wherever, you know, they, they've got to, they've got to produce product in very short order and they have to do so creatively. And they are wonderful researchers in very short order <laughs> because that's what they're paid to do. And then you take what I just said and transfer it over to blue sky thinking, right? What executive wouldn't want a paid Imagineer used to working under a time budget as part of their process? Blue sky activities can go on and on and on and on. <laughs> They could just drone on forever and drive leadership nuts, right? So that's why you take this process because you can condense that activity by an order of magnitude and get uh, and get a lot higher output as a result. Let's move from blue sky thinking to blue pill thinking because another great campaign you share is the repositioning of the drug Viagra. That was a a law of unintended consequences, right? So Viagra was initially created to be a heart medication. Uh, and, and the, you know, uh, Pfizer quickly recognized that the, the, it had other impacts uh, <laughs> and completely changed. And they, so they understood the context uh, and they completely changed, you know, how that, uh, that medication was used, marketed, distributed, and they completely changed their campaign around it uh, from where it was initially, uh, you know, why and where it was, how it was initially created. And for a deeper dive into that, John shares it in the book. But one thing I wanted to really ensure that we get out of today's show is the makeup and the numbers involved in a mixtape, because John goes to this granularity of how to run these campaigns. John, I really felt you really want to just get this out into the world. And it was one of the reasons I really wanted to have you on the show. But let's talk about that. You talk about the ideal size of a mixed table. And then you go into mentioning what you called an, an associative barrier. I'm going to answer the question a little bit differently. Uh, only be in that we are, uh, we find ourselves in a different world, namely the COVID world. And so our mixed tables have been very uh, intimate, immersive uh, experiences. Typically, 24 people, that's my optimum number, uh, where you, whereby you have uh, uh, three breakout groups of eight. Um, and so you, kinda, you, you have this plenary session uh, of the 24, uh, and then you're e giving each group different questions uh, to solve um, uh, and each one of those subgroups of eight comes back uh, after a period of an hour or two hours to report to the broader group of of, of what they've uh, of what they've solved slash uh, the progress they've made on the question that we've given them, uh, and it's it's very iterative. It goes in and out. 
we of course can't do that or won't do that uh, in the uh, in the um, uh, the COVID world. One of the things I've been doing is working with the CDC Foundation and others on messaging on activating uh, the entertain entertainment community uh, with regards to messaging of COVID. And what I would say is that it's every bit as bad as we think it is and then a whole lot worse. Uh, and so we have subsequently uh, started a series of Zoom events. What does, we call them our post-pandemic series. Uh, what, does the, what does the world look like in a post-pandemic uh, manner uh, you know, for national security, for the economy, for education, for public health, and what should policymakers and leaders be thinking about as it relates to these topics? And, and in the context of, of that, Aiden, what we've been doing is, is groups of uh, eight to 10 people. You know, we find 10 people is the maximum number of people that we could put on Zoom. Uh, eight's a fine number. Uh, so with an eight, it's something like uh, four, uh, uh, four subject matter experts, uh, two thought leaders, and two creators. Again, the same formula just truncated down in terms of, of the size, the overall size. And then from there also condensing the period of time that we're on Zoom just because of Zoom fatigue that everybody's experiencing. So, you know, since I've written the book, uh, we've uh, we've been forced to, uh, and uh, COVID has disrupted us. We've been forced to evolve that. We'll go back to uh, the the you know, our core mix tables in the future, uh, but for the time being, uh, our po entire post pandemic series is Zoom based. I wanted to share as well the the physical world because we will get out of this, John and. Uh... What I found really interesting was you mentioned the, the actual makeup. So you mentioned, for example, thought leaders there. And I found that's an unusual board that will maybe adopt those people. Not many. It's starting to happen more and more where people are seeing the value of neurodiversity. And, you know, I, I think this is really important that an overlooked point with diversity is that what you're really looking for is diversity of opinion and thought, not gender Diversity is is important, but that's not what I'm talking about. And it, they're not, uh, I'm talking about diversity of thought. Now, that doesn't mean they can't be the same, but that means there needs to be intentionality around them being not being the same. Because you really, you know, in order for organizations to thrive, it, you, you really want to make sure you're getting the broadest set of opinions with knowledge around those set of opinions uh, versus uh, versus diversity as it's commonly thought of today. I'm all in favor of inclusiveness, and, and I think that's a really important thing for organizations to strive for and to succeed at. Uh, but I also think it's important to have that intellectual diversity. I mentioned in the last question, John, I loaded you up with lots of stuff, but one of them was this idea of what you call an associative barrier. Uh, we we have barriers that are put up and the associative barrier allow, we have um, uh, beliefs by association. Uh, and, you know, and the groups that we put together, uh, you know, reinforce that. 
And so we want to make sure that we're not living in our own bubble, uh, words you said earlier. And the mixed table process is a way to help break that down. You've upgraded for or our leaders the world with with the post-COVID world, but in the physical world, in the where we can meet and interact world, you have a very precise structure over this. So for example, the three nights feeding people well, I think this is really important, John, because the granularity you go to is really useful to understand why you do those things. Why do you feel feed people well? Why do you make them feel at ease? All those things are really important to get the best results. It goes to the basic, uh, this basic principle. People learn when there's an emotional connection. And so you want to create an emotional connection. And, and put a different way, you want to immerse them in that experience. So you, you want people very relaxed. You want to give them food. You probably don't want to. We have, we really intentionally um, um, stayed away from alcohol or anything, you know, just in terms of, of the event, because we want people clear-minded once in a while on the last night, you know, we'll serve some wine or something or on a separate night, take people out to dinner, really let people get to know each other. So, so if you could do a four day in-person panel, uh, it's all in the evenings. Uh, and uh, the first evening starts about five, goes to about nine. You know, you're doing introductions and feeding them from 5.30 to 6.30. Then you're you're doing a, almost a mini TED-type talk, you know, back to the granularity you're looking for here, Aiden. You're doing a mini TED-type talk to, to kick it off, and, and then the moderators come and start to frame some of the larger issues that, uh, that they're contending with, why it's all brought together. Then you're breaking out these different groups. Uh, so again, you know, the, uh, you know, four, two, two, uh, you know, four, uh, subject matter experts, two thought leaders, two creatives, maybe four, one, three, uh, four subject matter experts, uh, one thought leader, three creatives, something along those lines. And, and they're given a, a specific challenge slash question to, to work on. Think Hollywood storyboard model. Uh, so really, we've taken a, uh, we've taken uh, the Hollywood storyboard model and the national security red team model uh, and, and uh, put the both of those together so that we are getting the best out of uh, the national security and the Hollywood community. At, you know, working through those questions. And then they go back to the larger uh, plenary session. And in front of all their peers, they, they, they talk about what they have found, why, uh, you know, how, uh, um, how they're uh, approaching the problem. Um, and then over the, the, the you know, next couple of days, if you have the four days, you know, literally on night two, throw them a party. You know, get let everybody get to know each other. Let everybody really start to work well. And, you know, the first day, as I describe it, you know, you alluded to this earlier, Aiden, everybody's body language is kind of like this. It's <laughs> Why am I here? Oh, my God. And by the end of it, it's, oh, my God, this is the most interesting thing I've ever experienced in my life. And so it's it really is, it really is interesting uh, to see that occur. And every time we've done it, we've seen it occur. I thought next, John, we might share the various types of campaigns 
And I'm just going to share my screen here for those people who are watching us. I have up there the four by four matrix that you use to describe this. So maybe we'll talk through this with empathy for those people who are just listening to the show. You have big and small campaigns. Uh, and you have internal and external campaigns. Uh, and again, all of the campaigns, as I mentioned a moment ago, have the same architecture. Uh, and a, a, a big uh, external campaign might be to develop a plan to enact uh, a piece of legislation. Uh, it could be uh, climate change, it could be uh, public health, it could be gun control, it could be whatever. Uh, that's a big that's a big external campaign. Um, a big uh, a small uh, internal campaign. Uh, might be, I want to lose 20 pounds by summer. Uh, again, th they have similar architectures. You have an objective that you have to identify. Uh, you have to understand context. Now, the context and the mapping of the process and the strategy and the tactics are, in my opinion, clearly much more complex on the big external campaigns than they are uh, the small uh, internal campaigns. But nevertheless, you know, the, the, the common elements are, again, you want to know, you want to identify your outcome. I want to pass a piece of legislation. I want to lose the weight. You, you need to understand context. And I think that context in, is perhaps the area of the campaign that people most frequently overlook. Um, and, and they can't, the, the context to put it a different way is the milieu, uh, in which you are operating in. What is that environment? What does the world look like that you're operating in as you're trying to do this? I mean, I'll pick on, uh, the United States, you know, clearly, um, uh, passing, uh, um, uh, a law on climate change, you know, or, or, or gun control in a Republican held uh, uh, with the House and Senate in Republican hands and, and the presidency in, in Republican hands has on the surface a lot lower chance of, of success contextually than if you were to do that, it, looking at it, in, the dynamic was reversed. And so you really have to think through and understand context because it sets the tone as to what you can achieve and what you can't. Because you have to you have to be smart about this. Uh, from there, you have to map the process. Well, um, uh, you know, in the case of losing that weight, uh, you know that you have a couple different uh, levers that. Uh, that you can uh, dial in on. Uh, you can cut down your calories and your intake, or you can increase um, the, uh, uh, you can increase uh, your exercise and your output and your calories burned. And so those are your basic dials of your map. On the big campaign, that process is exponentially more com complex. But you really do need to understand that process. You need to understand how a bill becomes law. <laughs> you need to understand, um, uh, you know, 
all of the different, uh, you have to be curious. Uh, you have to understand all of the different components, everything that goes into that. Who are the, you know, who are all, what are all the subcommittees? What are all the committees of jurisdiction? Uh, you know, what are the executive agencies uh, that will be asked for input? Uh, what is the, uh, what, what is the time um, frame involved in, in the, uh, in your legislative calendar, whatever it is, it, the point is that you have a process that you you have to you have to map it. You have to know as part of your map, you have to really un understand who your decision makers are. Same thing parenthetically for sales. And I find that on the sales and on the BD side, you know, uh, organization after organization forgets to map that process. Who are they targeting? Why would they want to buy? What, what authorities do they have? What authorities don't they have? And then from there, you can start to build strategies. And I say strategies versus a strategy in that because of that context, you know, my view is you have to identify two or three strategies uh, to run your campaign because if you get shut off at one point in time, you can continue on and go on. Uh, and then, then you have your tactics uh, the the actual uh, things that you are doing to achieve your campaign back to your small little campaign. Um, you're uh, joining Weight Watchers. Uh, you're only you're uh, exercise you're you know exercising a half hour a day. Uh, you are uh, eating the Atkins diet, whatever it is. Uh, and then of course you have to execute. You got to go. You got to go do it. So it's one thing to talk about doing it. It's another thing to actual, actually go doing it. And so uh, that's the campaign. And most of us, John, jump straight into execute into the tactics of things without doing the pre-thought because it's difficult and it, it takes a lot of mental energy. But uh, there, was, there was a couple of things I wanted to share. One was you mentioned context and you mentioned BDE and understanding who the buyer was. And you humbly share an incident here that you happened to you where it cost you a very lucrative contract. Yeah, we should have known better. Uh, uh, but we were, um, uh, but we let our enthusiasm uh, get the best of us. We had developed a, a, um, a really significant simulation system called the IED battle drill. Uh, so think about a 270 degree curved screen that's 25 feet high and uh, 25 feet across and 10 feet high with a uh, then picture a, a, a Humvee in the middle of it uh, on a flatbed of a truck. And that Humvee, uh, you could uh, detonate from four to eight Gs to simulate an IED blast with uh, real smoke coming out and 4D sound. And, 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 and you know, it was just, it was a, it was a really impressive weapon. It was a really impressive training system, and what we were told was that it was the uh, it was the highest level of simulation system ever built for ground troops. It rivaled uh, uh, flight trainers, um, and again, this is all about you know helping the troops identify and and not uh, identify IEDs. Um, the organization that had paid for it within the Army was uh, the Department of Defense was an organization called the Joint IED Defeat Organization. And they came to us and said, we want you to do this and we want a bunch of these and you start with these prototypes and, and then we're going to hand it over to the Army and the Army is going to buy them. Well, 
a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. Uh, the army said, Hey, this isn't our budget. We don't want this. And by the way, we don't like giant Oak because you know, we can do this. We can do this better and smarter. And, and so, uh, uh, it was, uh, uh, we, it was a great learning lesson. And thank you for sharing it. And thank you for sharing the book, because it really gives context to what you're talking about. One last thing I, I wanted to share, which is so important, is that you talk about the difference between working on a campaign and working in the campaign. And more importantly, that the team, the team of people, the mixed table may need to change. And oftentimes, the reason I share this is so many innovation teams or innovation departments in organizations come up with the idea, they may ideate, they may come up with a plan, etc. And then oftentimes, it's swooped off them and given to a different team to execute, and they can take it like an insult, an insult. But it often isn't. And you share this because they're different mindsets. There's an execute mindset. And then there's an ideation mindset, like you talked about the creatives who come up with the idea in the first place. I thought this was wonderful, and a really important thing to share. Thank you for that. Um, it's the difference between working on and in the business and working on and in an idea. Um, so sometimes you, you, I think it, it, it's easy for organizations to, to do just what you did uh, described, which is to conflate the two teams. They may or may not be the same teams. You know, as a practical matter, there'll be some overlap. But I would suggest that uh, almost always they're not the same teams. Uh, you want different teams to help you think about that big, hard problem uh, to bring the, inject that creativity versus those who are going to go get it done for you. Uh, and so I think that the, the key to that is being transparent, uh, providing clarity on the front end uh, so that nobody's, uh, uh, nobody gets their uh, feelings hurt. I pulled a passage that I absolutely loved, and I'd, I'd love to share it as my sign off today. I'll read it out because I can't memorize it. But I, it, while I'm doing that, if you have a think about how you'd like to sign off, because you wrote this for a reason, there was a, a, a clear reason why you wrote this, and I'd love you to share that. But uh, before I do, where can people find you find oral leaders, find out more about your work, the book, etc? rlleaders.com uh, and come to our website we'd love to uh, engage with you and you can find me at john at 360.com uh, john rogers at 360.com and uh, uh, so uh, we love you to come to the, the website and the blog and and uh, you know if you have any questions I'd, I'd be happy to get on the phone with you FaceTime with you and take, a, take it to the next level and I'll let you think about that sign off. Mine is as follows. I love this. We're not in the midst of a renaissance. We're not in our own version of the Middle Ages either. But we could slip into either one. How we proceed as a society will partially depend on how we evolve. There isn't time for limited thinking. We must be holistic and thoughtful, fostering a world that deals in creativity and civility rather than narrow mindedness and belligerence. The more holistic our thinking, the more we will create, the more problems we will solve, the more we will shape a world worthy of future generations. Beautiful, John. Beautiful way to sign off. What about you? We're all prisoners of our own perspective. Make sure that you wake up every day, remain curious, and strive to break through your own rigidity of thought. And if you do that and you realize that the most important thing that we can do is to bring it all to the table every day, treat everybody with kindness and respect and go do great things, 
you're going to do just fine. Author of The Renaissance Campaign, a problem-solving formula for your biggest challenges, John Rogers. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Have a great day.